0: And we are happy to have as our main speaker this afternoon, uh Erik Solheim, uh, who is uh the uh, former Norwegian, is a former Norwegian member of parliament and a former UN Under Secretary General and former director of the UN Environmental Program. And he is presently extremely active in uh, cooperation in green technology uh, between uh, Europe and China. And uh, I would like to offer you the floor to speak on that topic. And then we will uh, have some discussion uh, and maybe some questions for you after. So thank, you're
1: welcome, th- you're welcome, uh, Mr. Selvang. Th- th- thank you so much, uh, Stephen. Good afternoon, Sweden. We have China. Uh, happy to be with you wherever, wherever you are. Uh, the rise of China is for sure the most important development in my lifetime, and I guess in the lifetime of most people who are listening to this uh, conversation. Nothing has changed the world as much. And nothing has improved the life of so many people. It's, it's indeed unprecedented in human history. Yes, some smaller nations like, say, South Korea and Singapore and now Vietnam has done the same. And some big nations like the United States have done it, but over a long, long time. So the rise of 1.4 billion people in such a short period of time is mm-hmm. absolutely unprecedented. And, Please remember that when reform started in China in 1978, China was number 177 on the list of nations in the world measured in GDP per capita. It was indeed far behind most nations in Africa. Even as late as in 1992, GDP in um, in China was $420, much lower than most nations in Africa at the time. Last year, China past United States of America when it comes to life expectancy per person. So th- this is an enormous, unprecedented rise, which we should, of course, all celebrate. Uh, the first issue is what can other developing nations learn from China? When I speak to my African and friends and friends from other developing countries that tend to say that, oh, China is so big, it's so different, has such a long, strong culture. There is little we can okay, learn from China
0: okay, sorry. Yeah, uh,
1: many friends in other developing countries tend to believe that there is little they can learn from China. But of course, the rise of China is very similar to the rise of Singapore, the rise of South Korea, the now rise of Vietnam or Indonesia, many other East Asian nations. So there is obviously a lot to be learned. Singapore may be too small, China may be too big, South Korea may be too confusion, there is always an excuse. At the end, the main components of the development of China and East Asia uh, are there for everyone to see and basically for everyone else to learn from. What are these uh, uh, lessons to be learned? Number one, a very dedicated development-oriented leadership. Unless the top leaders of a nation are dedicated to development and put that ahead of any other concern, you will fail. China has been lucky enough to have a dedicated development leadership for the last four years, and a leadership which put bringing everyone out of poverty ahead of all other issues. Secondly, a market based economy. Obviously, if the gang of four still have been in power in China, God forbid. China would still have been poor because their policies were wrong. They didn't believe in the market. And only when China started to bring in the market, they started to develop. By the way, only when India did the same 15 years later in the 1990s, only then the takeoff in India also started. So state, strong state, market-based economy. And third is a massive focus on education. There are hardly any educated people in the world who belong to the very poor. So bringing people out of poverty, education uh, is core. So obviously developing nations can learn a lot from this process. (laughs) But they can also benefit in a more direct sense because China is now the main trading partner with the vast majority of all developing nations in the world. Even in what was considered the US backyard in the past, Latin America, China is now the main trading partner with big nations like, say, Brazil, or Argentina, uh, and, uh, and many others. and On the continent of Africa, I think only Mauritania have more trade with the U.S. than with, with, with China. So trade with China, investment from China, is a key factor for development in all developing nations. And of course, Belt and Road has established itself as the main vehicle for these investments. And more than 130 nations are now party to the Belt and Road. And these are basically every variety of developing nations, conservative or left-wing, and every, every religion or all, 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 all sorts of nations, and they all benefit from the generosity of China, but of course also from China's interest in creating market, uh, providing for raw material and for political influence. Last week at the G7 uh, summit, Uh, the rich uh, Western-oriented nations put forward a kind of competing uh, initiative called Build Back Better. I wish them all success with this initiative, but still it's more a marketing tool or more on the paper that's not as yet developed into a real investment opportunity uh, for the developing world. That may happen, and then hopefully we can see uh, some competition between the West and China, and some cooperation between the West and China, because that's what developing nations really uh, do want. I think the West should also consider where they can best add to the efforts of China. Uh, China has built 40,000 kilometers of high-speed rail since uh, Beijing Olympics in 2008. The United States of America has built exactly zero uh, kilometers of high-speed rail And when you don't have a domestic market, uh, it's highly unlikely that the United States can compete with China in building railroads in Africa or other parts of the developing world, and that's why we see China building the Laos uh, China Railroad, or the Bandung um, Jakarta Railroad in Indonesia, or the Mombasa Nairobi Railroad in Kenya. Because China has the experience from home, then you can easily go out and do it elsewhere. China now, last year, produced 80% of all solar panels in the world and 60% of all solar power in the world. So again, China has the domestic market and capability and uh, and, uh, 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 um, experience, which makes it likely that China uh, will drive this development of solar power in the rest of the world. I think the West should also consider where they can fill in to areas where they may be better than China. One area may still be education. Why the best Chinese universities like Tsinghua or Jiaotong or Fudan in in Shanghai, they are still they're high class universities. But still, most people in the developing world want to send their best children to Harvard or Yale or American universities. Language being one one factor. So bringing best students from developing nations to Western universities may be an area where the West can kind of fill into or Uh, cooperate with China rather than looking into the areas where China uh, is at the moment much better set to to help the developing world. Because a new development uh, in the last couple of years is that uh, Belt and Road has turned from a brown uh, fossil fuel heavy investment scheme into a green investment scheme. Belt and Road Road is now the major vehicle for green investments in the developing world. Really an instrument to create a global ecological civilization. It's a Chinese concept. That is a concept that the entire world should, should embrace. Of course, we want an ecological civilization. China is ahead of the rest of the world on every single environment technology. Mention mentioned solar. That is the same. 80% of all hydropower in the world last year came in China. 99% of all electric buses in the world are running on Chinese roads. China has 70% of the global market uh, for electrical batteries, which are so critical for electrification of the of the vehicle industry. Uh, basically, the, if you buy an electric car, half the value of the car is the battery, half. And China now controls that market, uh, not 100%, but very very close to. So. China has an enormous lead in most environment technologies. Frankly, the West need to get up early in the morning to compete with China in these areas. And this is, of course, an enormous service to the developing world because a new development paradigm is possible. The win-win opportunity. You don't choose between economy and ecology, but you do both. Solar power provides for more energy, which brings to development. But it's at the same time the most cost-effective, and the most environment-friendly uh, um, uh, uh, and energy. And there is enormous opportunities now for fast development in the developing world and for fast green development. In the past, of course, the only way to fast development was fossil fuels. Now, uh, renewables are the cheapest energies anywhere in the world. Indeed, uh, renewable solar energy now is the cheapest energy which has ever existed on planet Earth. So this new development paradigm where you merge ecology and uh, an economy into an ecological civilization, that's not now a realistic opportunity for all developing nations. And China is best placed to help other nations doing exactly that. The main factor uh, we need to consider is the geopolitics, because what can really jeopardize this is uh, ge- geopolitics. If the West particularly the United States of America and China, cannot find ways of coexistence, partnerships, working together, we will basically fail. Because we will be preoccupied uh, with, with the confrontation and competition rather than with what we can do together. So we need to base international relations on mutual respect. The West need to respect China. China need to respect the West. Uh, we, need to, uh, we need to accept that the political systems, uh, will, we, we, we will not change the political system in any other part of the world. As a Norwegian, I can maybe contribute to changes in the political system in Norway, but I will not change the United States, nor will I, I change uh, China. Uh, so we, we need to build our cooperation on the basis that we have different systems, that these systems can easily coexist. There is, there is no contradiction between the systems and some people, seem to believe and we should focus on all the areas where we need to work together economic development getting out of COVID, finding vaccines creating peace uh, fighting climate change and pollution all these uh, are areas where the western china need to work together there are some people in particular i have to say in the united states of america who believe that we should decouple the world that's a very dangerous idea, extremely dangerous. What will it mean? It will be mean that the entire world will be much poorer, much less resources for development in the developing world, much less innovation because the innovation is that we come together and learn from each other, and one idea from China is maybe taken further in, in the United States or vice versa. So we will be less innovative. There will be more conflicts and conflicts suck uh, engagement and interest and resources, so we should uh, avoid it uh, at all uh, price. I believe, however, there are big reasons for optimism. I believe that those people who want this kind of decoupling or confrontation they have they have a very difficult idea to sell because no one wants it. There's not one nation in the entire world who want to make a choice between the West and China. Everyone, everyone want to be close to both the United States and China at the same time. When John Bolton, the then security advisor of President Trump, basically asked all the presidents and prime ministers of, of Africa to make a choice between China and the United States, not one single leader raised his or her hand, not one, because everyone believed in getting investment from trade with, have political relations with, learn from both the West and the United States and they don't want to to choose. So anyone who wants decoupling at least is not in contact with what what the world wants at at this point. Added, of course, China uh, and the United States, China and the West is uh, integrated in an economic way in a completely different sense that during the Cold War. At the time of the Cold War, the United States and Soviet Union didn't even have a real economic relationship. There's much less, uh, much more trade in a few hours now between China and the West than there was for a year at the time of the Cold War between the Soviet Union uh, and the United States. And added to all this, there is no real ideological collision. The political systems are somewhat different, but they can easily coexist if we base. Uh, it on a non-missionary idea that we should not change each other, but we should learn from and work, uh, work together. Both uh, the United States and China should consider uh, better how they can work together. The main responsibility lies with the United States because they have been the uh, global superpower for the last, at least since uh, the last, for the last 100 years. Uh, and they have frankly some difficulties accepting the rise of China. When you have been used to being a totally dominating power for so long, it's a bit difficult to accept that there is a new power which is at your level. And that's a a big fear, big um, problem for the United States, uh, but they need to accept it. The United States also need to accept that the only threat to the political system of the United States comes from within. China is, has no idea to change the political system of the United States. China has, of course, no idea to attack the United States' military. To the contrary, the rise of China is the most peaceful rise to any major power in human history. China has not been involved in any war since 1979, the war with, with Vietnam, uh, while the United States basically has been involved in every war, war since, Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and, and so many others. So the rise of China is, is a peaceful one, the United States need to accept it, and the, the United States need to accept that the only threat to their own system comes from within, not from outside. There is no one outside threatening the U.S., but the lack of ability in the U.S. to work together between the two major parties and the tendency now to split up and um, to have uh, have a polarization on every issue Uh, is very dangerous for the United States. Look to the last week where the Supreme Court decided basically that you can now in some states have abortion until 24 weeks to the last minute of the pregnancy. You can have free abortion, while in the next two states you will not even accept abortion in the case of rape uh, or incest. That's an enormous difference within one nation And it creates, of course, a lot of uh, domestic tensions, and that should be the focus uh, of the United States when they want uh, to protect the democratic system for the world, start at home, that will be the most helpful for for the world. China can also consider uh, acting in ways which are more beneficial to uh, world uh, reconciliation and peace. China is now a very, very strong power It's, of course, a very big land by by population, it's an enormous economy. And China needs to understand that with such such an enormous power and strength comes also responsibility. China has, in some cases, taken even small, slight minor criticisms uh, from other nations as frontal attacks. Here, I mean, the United States need to learn from China in ab- abolishing the, uh, the missionary idea that you should change the entire world in your, in, in your way. But China could also learn a little bit from the United States in not taking every criticism, uh, so, so harshly, uh, accepting that a big nation, a strong nation, a very self-confident nation like China can accept that o- other people criticizing China or their system or human rights in China, whatever it may be, and China can uh, simply go into a, 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 a conversation on these issues rather than taking uh, these slides as, as massive, massive, uh, massive criticisms. Finally, a top of course of the global agenda for the last uh, few uh, months have been the war in Ukraine, and I believe here we should also try to look more for common ground, because if you want this war to stop which I think we all want, uh, is more likely to stop if there's more of a dialogue between the main powers. Uh, we should not sing... I mean, the United States should stop singling out China as the only nation with a different view. reality is that the Chinese view is similar to the view of basically every other major developing nation in the world. India, Indonesia, Nigeria, South Africa, Brazil, Mexico. They basically all have, have the same view. They want to support the sovereignty of Ukraine. But at the same time, they do not want to break with Russia and they don't believe in sanctions. And I think there is a way forward, however difficult, on Ukraine. We need to accept that on sanctions or Russia, there are different views. The West will continue sanctions. Most developing nations don't believe in sanctions. But that's simply a disagreement which we can live with. Added, we all should defend the sovereignty of Ukraine completely unacceptable if a nation simply grabs parts of another nation without any real uh, reason for doing that, any excuse for doing that, and accepting land grab by uh, the, by Russia, because also undermine the arguments, say, that with China's putting forward on, on Taiwan. In Taiwan, China argues rightly that this is an inter-Chinese matter because uh, it's a battle of national sovereignty. Taiwan was accepted as a part of China by, say, Roosevelt and Churchill in 1943, and, and the entire world accepted Taiwan uh, as a part of China, which should be uh, peacefully uh, re- reconciled uh, with China. But if you put forward the national sovereignty argument in that case, we also need to accept that we need to defend national sovereignty of Ukraine. At the same time, we should also accept that Ukraine is between Russia and the West. It should be neutral should of course not be a member of NATO, and should not be in any way a frontal base for anyone against the other. And indeed, also Russia and Ukraine found some formulations of this in Istanbul in the early days of the war, where they basically had a, uh, had a sketch for an agreement which was based on Ukraine being neutral, and all the major powers, United States, China, Europe, but also main developing nations, even Israel, was was called upon to uh, guarantee for the national sovereignty and independence of Ukraine. So we are living in difficult, tough times. There is enormous reasons for optimism when it comes to development and environment. We have had fantastic progress in the last decades. But at the end of the day, it depends on our ability to keep world peace and to work together to uh, on on the main crisis of the time, and that is why the relationship between China on one in one end and particularly United States uh, on, on the other is the defining issue of the twenty first century. If we get that right, we'll be able to solve basically every issue, whether it's at the end Ukraine or its peace or its in development or its in climate. Uh, let's work together. Because as it's said in one of the old sayings of of India, in the Vedas, the whole world is one family. Let's put that on our mind. The whole world is one family. Thank you so much. Kjechya.